Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Matt Bell, is the author of the novella Cataclysm Baby, the short story collection, How They Were Found, and three chapbooks, Wolf Parts, The Collectors, and How the Broken Lead the Blind. Matt Bell is a senior editor at Dezank Books, editor of the online literary magazine The Collagist, and a teacher of creative writing at Northern Michigan University. His short fiction has been anthologized in Best American Mysteries and Best American Fantasy, and earlier this year he was named by Flavorwire as one of the 10 best millennial authors you probably haven't read yet. If that's true that you haven't read him, it probably isn't true for long. Matt Bell's debut novel, In the House, Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods, has been met with an onrush of critical acclaim. A book the Library Journal calls as beautiful as it is ruinous, and that NPR declares as one of the smartest meditations on the subjects of love, family, and marriage in recent years. Welcome to Between the Covers, Matt Bell. Thanks so much for having me, David. So this novel, unlike your novella, is stubbornly resistant to summarization. It's Right. <laughs> it's nearly impossible to encapsulate, yet some interviewers, perhaps with a perverse sense of humor, have asked you to do so in 10 words or less, right. which is less words than the title right. of your book. And you said at the time, a myth about marriage and parenthood with bear, squid, and maize. Does that still sound like a good uh, soundbite if you had to reduce it to one? Yeah. I mean, if you were trying to sell the book in an elevator, I mean, like, that'd be one way to go, you know, but it still doesn't say very much, you know. Um, yeah, it's a really difficult book to, to synopsize. And I think, um, you know, even when we've had to do it for marketing purposes and that, I think we've more tried to hint at sort of like the mystery of the book and sort of the scope of the book than try to give the elevator pitch because it's not a very good book for that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's been interesting watching people grasp for different uh, descriptors, right. whether it's Borges and Calvino and Kafka or in the Washington Post, uh, a fable chanted by druids on mushrooms. <laughs> uh, that was great. But one of the, one of the most exciting things about the book for me is, is the fact that it resists right. summarization. And it also feels like, I think in Tin House, they described it as a book that doesn't feel like it has antecedents, and that carves out its own uh, new territory in fiction, but also on its own terms. And so what I wanted to, I, I wanted to start, rather than with what the book is about, with what you foregrounded in the book. And that seems to me to be the language. So we have a, um, we're confronted with a syntax, a style of characterization that makes it clear we're not reading a normal book. Right. Usually I'll have guests read from the book later on, but let's just start with you reading from the prose, and then maybe we can get into a discussion about some of the choices you made around language. Um, absolutely. So I'm going to read um, from 50 pages into the book. This is sort of after the husband and wife have the have what family they have, right? The fingerlings there, the foundlings are there. This is one of the places where time is moving faster. The days were thieves, and the happier ones the worst their distractions allowing the hours to pass unnoticed, allowing the minutes to be snatched away without knowledge of their passing. As my wife contented herself with the foundling, so I tried to make my trapping and fishing count for something. So I tried to convince myself that the fingerling could be a son all my own, son enough and better for his embedded residency, a station where neither of us might ever lack the other, as the foundling lacked his mother at every moment. For what breast was brought soon enough after the hunger, what calming touch brought comfort in the instant of its need? No, whenever we were satisfied, 
Then we were deluded, and in our delusions the days took from us what was ours, as wood hollowed with termites, as all iron rusted, as our clothes faded and split their machined threads, and as the home-sown furs that replaced them grew stale and stiff. Seasons went by, each less distinct than the one before, and what world we had grew only sparser, colder. Now there was less to trap in the woods, less to catch in the lake, and what restockings there were made things only worse, as with the blunter animals the bear brought back. My wife and I, we aged, and although I knew it was not correct, still it often appeared our children were the agents of our diminishment. The fingerling devouring me from within, and the foundling always at his mother's side, taking of her body, her energy, her time, her grace. And so the days passed, and as they passed they took. Our hair grayed, our teeth yellowed, our bodies stooped across our bones, and the mirror there was no one I recognized, only my fatter face, my beard atop that fat, my body bigger, and yet every year there was even less of me to love, to be loved by. I, I find this this foregrounding of sort of a lyrical language to be very refreshing. And it seems to me, and I wonder if you agree, that the default around contemporary literature is more like the Hemingway, Raymond Carver school, where you, you try to almost make the, the prose invisible mm-hmm. and, and go right to the the plot and characterization. And here you've intentionally um, put us in a different space where you're using tropes that you don't really see a lot anymore, alliteration, mm-hmm. repetition. It almost feels incantatory the way the way when you read it. So I would love to hear a little bit about what were some of your um, syntax influences and, and what were you trying to achieve in terms of the sound of the language? Um, I think it's really... It's important to me that the, I don't know, the language is visible, or that the language is allowed to have that sort of acoustic resonance or effect. Um, you know, obviously most people read the book will never hear any of it out loud. They'll, they'll, they'll hear it um, only in their own head. Um, but even there, I think like that, that sound makes the prose like a, like a thing as opposed to being invisible in the way that some people prefer it to be. And that I think that that has sort of an effect on the reader, even if they never actually hear it out loud. Um, so it's really important to me. You know, some some of the writers who are big influences um, on me uh, as I was sort of figuring out what I do are people like Brian Evanson and Christine Scott and Sam Lipsight um, and people who their sentences are always sort of visible in that way. I read a lot of Cormac McCarthy when I was working on this book. Um, there's a lot of um, King James Bible in the voice, you know, a certain way of, of, of doing the meter. Um, and so those things all sort of combine in ways or show other ways of doing this. Um, but it, yeah, it really mattered to me that like every word sort of had um, some kind of weight in the sentence as opposed to being able to be glossed in a certain way. And there was some discussion that some of the word choices, when you go back to the roots, the Anglo-Saxon roots right. versus the Latinate roots, can you talk a little bit about that? And and it sounded like it was something that you were doing inadvertently that somebody pointed out. Yeah, uh, Michael Kimball um, pointed out to me one time uh, with a story that's in my first book that I was sort of choosing, when given an option, 80% of the time or something, choosing the Anglo-Saxon word instead of the Latinate word. And sort of talked to me about how, like, the, the Latinate words are more, um, like, sort of the ideas or the, the spirit words or the, where the, um, the Anglo-Saxon is often more bodily and more grounded. Um, and so by, by sort of making those choices when you can and sort of foregrounding things in the, 
the Anglo-Saxon part of English, sometimes you get that very earthy, sort of bodily, guttural sort of feel. Um, the words are sort of harsher and have harder sounds, um, more stresses. And so, yeah, it does sort of like bring the, the prose right down to the ground level. Um, it's interesting. It's something that I wouldn't have maybe known if he hadn't shown me that and was, was neat to look at the... Um, even Wikipedia has this like really handy like Anglo-Saxon Latin like sort of comparison for words and you can just see it right away sort of that um, some of those differences. Uh, so yeah, so word choices like that. There's a lot of old words in the book. Um, my copy editor would circle words and be like, that's not a word. And I'd be like, well, it was in 1830, you know? And so there's some of that. So the callbacks to this older diction that also sort of builds that, that feel, I think. Tell us a little bit about your writing process. I know that you don't start with themes and ideas right. so much. How do you push your way forward in creating a world like this? Yeah, so I uh, the first image I had when I started the book, the first thing I wrote was, um, it's not in the book anymore, but it was a passage about the husband watching the wife singing. And, and sort of in her voice, he, he sort of sensed all these like objects that she would eventually create, including the family um, that he wanted. Um, and that those first sentences had a certain voice. And I was trying to extend that voice, just trying to stay in that prose to make, to to keep speaking that way if I could. And in following that sound and following that syntax that I seem to sense there, um, other things sort of just showed up in sentences. And, and I think the first day I wrote, I had, I had the bear and I had these sort of terms of the dirt and the lake and the woods. And I had the fingerling and the foundling in like one sentence a piece. And I had no idea what they meant or what they were. And he started unpacking those sort of mysteries. So there's this more discovered sort of feel to the process than um, than planned. I plan later. I plan second drafts and third drafts, but first drafts are very messy and sort of organic. I can rarely go for very long. I write like a half page and then I lose the thread and I just pick up somewhere else. And, you know, and eventually start, those start to coalesce together. You've, you've yeah. mentioned before uh, the craft book, The Half-Known World by yeah. Robert Boswell. Do you, do you subscribe to that idea that knowing too much about where you're going is, is actually counterproductive to creating the narrative? Um, yeah, absolutely, I think. I mean, maybe not for everybody. Everybody works differently. I'm just reading ba the Boswell book for the first time this summer, um, and it seems to me very... It's a really smart person saying things I believe already, right? Yeah, it's really nice. Boswell just has a better way of saying it than I would. Um, and I like that phrase, the half-known world. Um, when I was writing the first draft of this, you know, your brain naturally wants to make sense of things. And so I'd start thinking ahead and be like, oh, maybe this means this and this is going to happen. I'd, I'd write out these plans and I'd throw them away and go back to like working sentence to sentence um, and just like let my brain have it and then like ignore it. Yeah, to, to discover it from within rather than trying to impose this overarching plan, which just never works out very well for me. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers and we're talking today to Matt Bell about his novel In the House, Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods. So people are probably wondering, why, do you, why does Matt Bell keep saying husband and wife? Like, right. why isn't he naming the characters? But in, in the book, the characters are husband and wife, right. and they don't have a ton of descriptors. We don't right. know right. the color of their hair. Right. We don't know what race they are. Right. or We know their genders, obviously. Right. <laughs> but uh, but um, you're really going, at least it seems like you're really going for this sense of myth or fairy tale. And you mentioned Cormac McCarthy and the Bible is, I think, great examples of that. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that um, sure. genre. And I know you've written a little bit about the flatness of character and yeah. have talked about flatness of never was and flatness of erasure. Yeah. So I would be curious how that interplays with this enterprise. The husband narrates the book, and he could, he could say the wife's name, 
but there's something something in his his character is very you know he's possessive and he's sort of this idea of dominion or stewardship over the world and over the family and there's something about him saying my wife over and over and over again that he just that he only thinks of her in this possessive way there's you know so beyond the move to the mythic that it sort of creates i think that there's something inherent in his character he always says my wife but he never refers to the the child as anything but the foundling right he never he never says my right like it's the possessive is not there. So there's distant from the son, possessive of the wife. Some of those things have to do with, with building character. As far as uh, flatness of characters, some of what I mean by that is that it wouldn't, I just don't think it would matter more if you knew some of those things about these characters. Would it? Would you love the narrator or hate the narrator more if his name was Joe or Roland or whatever it could be, right? Um, maybe, but it seems like it doesn't matter. In a story where there's only one man and one woman, they can just be he and she. Like, it doesn't, there's um, no reason to sort of impose on that in some ways. And I think the other part of it is, and like you were talking about with the, the flatness aspect, in the absence of some of those things being there, the reader fills and they put their own sort of stuff there. Um, and if it's built right, that flatness isn't frustrating as much as it can become like a container for the reader to sort of en enter into the story in a certain way. It asks more of them than giving all of that would. And I think that hopefully creates more investment emotionally in the story. And it also feels like having these these category names makes it harken back to like older, mm -hmm. older storytelling traditions. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like it's, it's like pre-written. Like we're passing down something ancient mm -hmm. to to the reader. It's a funny feeling, right? Because like all the old stuff you go back to, like all the epics and sort of religious texts, all those people have names. I don't know why it creates that feeling. Yeah, it's but strange. it really does, right? I mean, you go you don't go back to like Greek or Norse myth and find a bunch of unnamed people out of the they wilderness. All have names. But like, there's something about it that, that I, it's very fairy tale ish, where you don't often have it. But yeah, it's an interesting thing because it absolutely creates that feel. But it doesn't really add up when you go back and look at like old, so I don't know. But yeah, it definitely has that effect. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about the plot. So okay. so we the heart of the story to me seems yeah. to be a couple couples off and they right. they have a desire to start anew, which is very universal. Mm -hmm. And the, they move they move to the woods, to a cabin by the lake, and they want to have a family. And they aren't able to. And that seems to be... Uh, if not the essence of the story, the setup for the right, story. Absolutely. And and I'm wondering for you, here we have this. It seems to me like the uh, core is that the husband cannot adapt when he's not going to get what he wants. Essentially, he has a deep, yeah. desperate desire, and he's going to let the quest for the desire overshadow everything that he already has. Would you say that's a good a good? Uh, Description? No, I, think, I think absolutely. I think his um, he just ha he has this idea that the world should, should sort of bend toward toward his desires. And and in this story, of course, often he can bend the world sort of to to what he wants. Um, not well, or not ultimately, but but in many ways, like they they sort of affect the world much more dramatically than maybe we do on an individual basis. But yeah, he's you know, there's a part in the book where he talks about uh, realizing his problem is sort of that he. Um, never really understood how to be a father, never really should to be a husband, only of wanting to like have a wife, to, to, um, to have a child. And he never, even after he realizes that, struggles, I think, to, to not act that way. That there's, you know, it's an interesting character in that his arc is sort of constrained. I think he gets better in certain ways, but his, his core changes very little, you know. And I think that makes him a, a, an, it was an interesting character to write and a frustrating character in some ways that like, 
there there's a happier you know arc for him that you could wish for that's maybe not in him to have you know and I think there's a lot of tension in that and I yeah I I like that I think it was often making the choices I I wouldn't make or I wouldn't want someone to make and out of that creating sort of some of the the moral tension in the story another thing that the book really explores well I think is we all have this sense when we find a partner want to start a family that we're going to start anew. You're right. leaving your other family. Right. You're starting a new one. And there's a, an illusion that you can reboot. Right. And so this <laughs> almost feels like like an attempt to create an Eden. Mm-hmm. And the book is really saying that no matter what y- you do with this attempt, the things that precede you will still come and haunt it. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to describe it. Um it's interesting because they get this way more clean of a break than we normally do, right? They just go to this new place and they build a house and there's not, supposedly nothing there, right? But then there's like other people's stuff left instead. You know, there's these other sort of entities they have to deal with. Uh, yeah, and I think that's always the case. Um, I don't know about you, how, you know, your progression in your own life, but I know there was a time when I was 20 or 21 where I was like, I'm just going to move to like a new place and sort of like, you know, just I'll make all new friends and I'll do all this new stuff. And you immediately realize that, like, that's really hard and sort of impossible in some ways to just, like, move across. You know, like, I'm now I live here and I have this life. And rebuilding that takes forever. That most of us are sort of buoyed by these systems of friends and family and, and our p- past in a place. The way that, I, mean, I don't know, how many years does it take you to learn a new city when you move to it? Like, really, in the way that one, you know, the one you were born in. And so, yeah, so they've given up... The, like, their history, and, and both culturally, they have almost no culture. I mean, they, and they're trying to live without these things, and that's not, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. The, the deepest connection I felt as a resonance with this book was, was the book of Genesis and the mm-hmm. Bible, both because this has a sort of biblical flavor to it, yeah. but also because it feels like, almost like in a, a lost apocryphal book from Genesis about Adam and Eve. So here mm-hmm. we have, or at least people who are right, trying sure. to be like Adam and Eve, sure. There's the impulse to go forth and multiply, which is right. from the Bible, but al- but also the ad- idea of generation, because mm-hmm. and we have um, the wife who can actually sing things into being, can change the stars and the moon, which actually reminds you a, a little bit of God and what He creates yeah. on the different days in mm-hmm. the beginning of Genesis, and even the the husband has a, a generative aspect to him mm-hmm. different right. than, than the wife. Yeah. But did you see that or did that did you notice that yeah. retrospectively? Um especially yeah, especially as I as I was revising and there's those ways to touch on that. Um to use some of that Genesis language about like stewardship over over the earth and and sort of man's dominion and stuff like that, I think are things to heighten. It's very interesting to me that I I think the wife seems so much more powerful than the husband, sort of all the time, right? Um, she's just able to do all these things that he can't. And he doesn't, he sort of never inquires about them or asks. He finds them threatening instead. Um, that he feels like he's been sort of given this place to, to be in charge of. Um, and he's never in charge of it. Like, not only is he not, you know, inside the house he feels he doesn't have what he wants, but then in the woods there's the bear and in the water there's the squid. And they have these sort of, um, he never has what he wants in that way. Uh, so it's kind of a thwarted Eden that way. And, you know, Genesis and God comes down and has Adam name all the animals and stuff and sort of like just like gives him this place. Um, this guy doesn't get that same deal in the same way. He thinks he does, thinks he should, but doesn't necessarily get that. Yeah. Well, th- that's interesting that you mentioned about the wife seeming all powerful. Yeah. And and it feels to me that's a very uh, it's it's flipping the Genesis story mm-hmm. on its head because obviously Eve is conditional. God right. is breathing 
a life into the dust to create Adam, but it's mm. Adam's rib that's creating right. Eve. But here, uh, there, it feels like there's a primariness to womanhood mm-hmm. in the book. So a woman obviously can create right. from nothing right. in terms of giving birth, but but the wife can also actually sing things into existence mm. where the husband can only build things that are from things right. that are already there right. or kill things to create right. food. So tell us what you're playing with with gender dynamics there. Yeah, and I, and I don't know. I mean, I don't have a plan for it necessarily. In some ways, that's that's what how the, how it emerged as I wrote. You know, I don't think that I necessarily set out to, to say something or to have them be like avatars for an ideal or something. Um, but it's interesting how that worked out. It's some of it's just contrast, right? Like it has to be. It, I think she's different than the husband in certain ways, and that's how it appeared. But I I do think there's something interesting. I think that the the creative difference, you know, as far as in, in childbirth or childbearing um, between men and women is dramatic and sort of a really different thing. It's it's an amazing difference to think about. And I think the, and some of, but some of it in the book, I think, isn't, I don't know that the husband couldn't sing in the way the wife does. I know that he doesn't, you know. Um, he doesn't know how, but that doesn't mean he couldn't. Um, I'm not sure the wife could before they come to this place. You know, I think it's sort of hinted in the book that, that at least it's stronger here than it was before. Um, there's a part in the book that I've just started reading at readings that I, I never had before where, where they're talking at dinner and she's telling them they're first trying to eat meat instead of fish and she's kind of telling him, like, the rules are different here, you know, like we can do these other things. And it's like she's figured out this way of, like, of being in the world and of creating the world you want that she's trying to give him access to and that he just sort of doesn't even, he just refuses to see. Um, so I don't know, like, the difference is... Maybe not like a like an overarching gender thing as much as maybe it has to do with these two people and this couple, but yeah, there is a difference in in the very few characters we have in this book, where the the men are sort of destroyers and the women are creators. Um, but I don't I wouldn't want to say like this is a book about how men are destroyers and women are creators. That's vastly oversimplifying and probably an unfair on both ends. You know. Sure, yeah. and and I really think and you I know were, you weren't saying that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. your your book feels like it it definitely resists simplification. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel like it's a transparent allegory for right. some sort of yeah. embedded message. Maybe it is, but it's and I, not, and I lost I it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also this interesting tension between constraint and uh, repetitive, mm-hmm. almost inf- infinitive, infinity yeah. and form. So on the one hand, you have uh, only two humans in the book. We have a bear, we have a squid, we have a very limited landscape. Right. And they don't go very far in the landscape. On the other hand, we have these sort of uh, repetitive portals where mm-hmm. we get uh, reiterations of the original house right. as he goes and, and tries to find his wife again. What are you doing with those with those uh, repetitions? I, I mean, I could tell you what I think you're doing. Sure. <laughs> but I, I mean, I feel like one of the lessons of the book, if there was a lesson, would be that this character can't see what he has. Right. And it's, there's nothing wrong with his desire, but right. it's clear he's not going to get it. Right. So he can't pivot off right. of that. And so in his journey to try to find his wife, we're seeing sort of a physical um, manifestation of these repetitive, non-productive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's off base, but I... No, I, I like that. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't put it the same way, but I think there's, yeah, there's some truth to that. I think, um, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a point, at some point in the book, like, he has a, a wife who seems incredibly generous toward him because he's kind of a, a rough dude. And then he has 
has this kid and they're raising them and things are like things are fine like you could be happy with this life um and he's just not there's a there's a part in the book um you remember when i was editing and my editor was just like i love this chapter because he's just so mad at like the foundling for being a baby right like he's just like he's just a kid like like, like every other kid and he's just like frustrated because it's not what he wants so I think I think that's part of the repetition. I think some of it is that while every marriage is unique in a certain way, it, they're also, I think, very similar in a certain way. Every family is unique in its own ways. But there's, there's just these sort of things that are just part of, like, um, being a family or being a, a husband or being a, a, a wife or, you know, that, that do seem shared. Um, and so he keeps wanting his life to work differently and he keeps finding another version of the life that's sort of the same, right? Partly because what he's asking for is not what you get, you know? Like, it, And there are chances for him to sort of recognize that, and, and he maybe fails. And some of what he eventually finds out, I think, is, is less that less how to make the world what, it, what he wants it to be, and more at least understanding why he's apart from what the world is, you know? But yeah, I, I think that... The reason we have so many, you know, tropes and jokes about like marriage and child rearing and parenting and all that stuff is partly because some of them are like, you know, they're true. The, the way that stereotypes are simplifications of ways we really are, you know. Yeah, and the use of secrets in the book right. it adds a, a another level to the myth and the fairy tale, but also feels like it rings true right. around relationships because yeah. both of the partners have secrets and everything in the book has a secret essentially mm-hmm. there's a secret in the woods there's right. a secret in the lake mm-hmm. there's a secret in the bear and uh and you could imagine somebody who's who's unable to change they would there would be the lessons embedded in anything they right. looked at right yeah no that's a really nice way to say it yeah i feel like he gets a lot of chances you know <laughs> um sort partly cuz you know like unlike our our relationships there's a lot of chances where like the damage he does doesn't have to be permanent because he find there's like a rebooted version or he gets to um, he gets to start from scratch in certain ways. Um, yeah, I think that I think it's interesting that he has all these chances to sort of do these things and all these similar versions. And each time he comes to it, he is so concerned with this well, these one or two driving concerns that he just misses all of the complexity of these things. So the ways that they could be powerful in different ways than what he wants. Uh, which is probably again, I mean, it's fairly shouldn't have been true of, of my experience in different places, right? Where you're you're so focused on this thing that you're not seeing all the other things that you you have or could have. So, in the process of putting in the house together, doing this this e- extremely unique singular work, how is that informing what you're doing now? Are you are you feeling like I have to do something that's totally different, <laughs> or are you taking this farther along a similar path? Um. Well, thankfully, I think uh, I don't necessarily feel the pressure to like um, beyond just wanting to continue to do new things myself. You know, I, I don't know that I would describe it as like this has no antecedents. And you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that about it. Um, so I'm not I'm sure the next book doesn't either. Um, I am working on something new. Um, I'm in a second draft stage on a new novel. And uh, and it's in a different mode. It's not in this sort of in it's not in this mythic mode, at least. And it's sort of set in a real place. And, you know, and, um, and so it works a little differently. One of the frustrations I had over the years that I was working on this, especially toward the end, was necessarily every product excludes a certain amount of things, right? And this book excludes a lot. There's a lot of things that can't be a part of it because it's so constrained. And I remember being, you know, 2011 and 2012 and going through like sort of the elections and stuff and feeling that um, frustrated that I was writing this book that I couldn't incorporate 
culture, politics, or these sort of things. So some of the move is, is to let me look at different things or focus on different things, um, to write a different kind of sentence. I think uh, I saw Ann Carson read last year, or not really read, but they did a table reading of her translation of Antigone that just came out. And someone in the audience asked her, you know, why, do you, why are you doing so many different things? Why, you know, you're translating from the Greek, you're writing poems, writing essays, you're doing all this different stuff. And she talked about every book, learning how to write a book by writing it. But then once you've learned how to write that kind of book, why would you keep writing that same book over and over? And I like that a lot. You know, I don't think, I, I, I can't, and I'm sure wouldn't be able to if I wanted to completely reinvent myself every book. Um, but I want to learn to write a new kind of sentence. I want to learn to write a different kind of character. Um, I wrote two books in this sort of archaic prose, and it tends to lend itself to a certain kind of loud, egomaniac sort of narrator. Was I don't want to write only that kind of person for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> so, so a prose that allows me to do something different um, is on is on the table, and hopefully, um, getting me somewhere else that will be strong and interesting. It was great having you on the show. Well, thanks Matt. so much for having me. We're talking today with Matt Bell about his debut novel, In the House, Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.